Welcome to Don't IEP Alone, the only podcast dedicated to helping parents navigate the IEP process and hosted by a special education advocate. Your host has been attending IEP meetings for over a decade and has helped thousands of parents go from an IEP rookie to an IEP all-star. Be prepared to learn tips that will be a total game changer for you as a parent advocate and most importantly, your child's outcomes. Partnered with the award-winning Lock a Day in Our Shoes, you'll be confident, knowledgeable, and actually looking forward to your next IEP meeting. Don't IEP alone. Get ready. Here's your host, from suburban Philadelphia, Lisa Leitner. Hi, and welcome to Don't IEP Alone from A Day in Our Shoes. This is Lisa Leitner. With me today is Monica Jones from the Brain Recovery Project, and um, I'm excited to have her here. I'm excited for you all to get to know her if you don't already. Um, I honestly don't even know. How did we meet? I don't even know how we met. I think I messaged you through the Facebook group somehow, your Facebook group, when I was just in awe of everything that you're doing for parents who whose kids need IEPs. Thanks. It's weird. It's a weird, um, it's a weird obsession to have. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. So this is Monica. So Monica, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Brain Recovery Project and how you got started, why you started it and all that fun stuff. Sure. So my first son was born with a massive unilateral brain malformation that caused him to have quite literally hundreds of seizures a day since birth. In retrospect, I'm pretty sure he was seizing in utero. Um, and the only quote-unquote cure for his seizures was to remove half his brain. And that's a very long story, <laughs> very short. He's actually had multiple brain surgeries. Um, but what I like to say in terms of IEPs is that nothing brought me to my knees like the IEP process for him once we started um, you know, going into school at around when he was three which I think is pretty absurd when you think about it, that managing your child's IEP is worse than <laughs> brain surgery. And not just like a little brain surgery, removing half his brain. What's even worse about it is I practiced law for 15 years before he was born. So if I couldn't figure it out myself as an attorney, how in the hell, excuse my French. I'm sorry, I curse all the time on my podcast. Uh, yeah, are people who don't have the bandwidth for it, don't have the legal background. All of us are juggling so many different things at one time with our kids. And it just seemed absurd to me at the end of the day. So I really put my head down in terms of trying to get to know the law. And we at the Brain Recovery Project decided we wanted it, this to be one of our core initiatives was helping parents of, of children who've had these brain surgeries to stop seizures, and some of them are really big surgeries, help them figure out the IEP process so that these kids can succeed in school. Okay, so you, you the main focus of the Brain Recovery Project is what? I mean, I know IEPs is a big part of it, right? Yeah. Or is yes. that your main, you said it's your main focus, what else? It's not do? our main focus. It's so main focus. Okay. no, so we started the organization, my husband and I in 2011, because uh, you know, after they removed half my son's brain, I looked at his neurosurgeon and I said, well, now what? And he said, <laughs> I don't know. We don't know. Just get a lot of therapy. 
which I thought was a crazy response. And I've gotten to know him pretty well. So we decided to start the organization initially just to fund research to better understand rehabilitation after hemispherectomy. So we had a tremendously narrow focus for a very long time. Then at around 2016, I was saying to one of my colleagues here, you know, we're really not doing a good job of representing the whole community of kids that need brain surgery because, you know, through the Facebook groups, we see they have needs too. You know, if you just have your frontal lobe removed or if you just have this history of seizures and, and have a smaller resection, those children also have needs as well. So we expanded our research reach to include all the epilepsy surgeries and then really revamped our programs internally so that we could serve the kids in many different ways. And one of those ways is helping and empowering parents to understand their child's educational needs and the IEP process comes of that. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded, but. No, no, that's, it's, um, no, and that's probably why you and I have hit it off um, because we do have so many similarities because the same thing happened with us in that, you know, I took this course, become an advocate and Kevin was still a baby at the time, a toddler. And it was that whole piece of, you know, I have a college education and I, I don't understand this, you know, yeah. I don't, and, and not only that, but that we're expected to understand it and that you're at very much a disadvantage if you don't dig in and make the effort to understand it. Yes. Um, and you and I live in what I consider, you know, I have, I'm doing air quotes because this isn't a video. Um, but you and I live in what I consider the good states for IEPs. Um, right. If there is such a thing, but there are certainly some states who have regs that are a little, you know, structured a little bit better to favor the kids more. Um, and also just have more resources. Yes, that's right. I would say California, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, you know, and a few others, you know, whereas the more rural states I find are, you know, those kids are at such a huge disadvantage um, just because the resources and the thinking and a lot of it, you know, just isn't there. It is. It's really terribly sad. It really is. So we want to do our best to help all of those children as much as possible. And part of that for us comes from helping the education team as well understand what the educational implications are of some of these surgeries. And that has also been an interesting strategy for us because I think for some of these kids, part of the issue is that the team itself just doesn't understand what the impairments are after some of these big procedures. So we have found some success in, in actually aligning with the school team and saying, look, you can't teach a child how to read when they can only see half a letter <laughs> without using certain interventions that are going to help them see the whole letter before you're teaching them to read the word. And there's this aha moment with them. Oh, now we get it. Now we understand why this has been a challenge. So, but it's an uphill climb, as you know, it's so frustrating. It is. It's, um, it is. And I think that there are certain populations um, like your son and my son where the bar is also set very low. The expectations just aren't there. Um, and, and that's a huge barrier to overcome. It is. And there's, there, it's not just, so my son does have significant challenges. He's nonverbal. We have adults in our community of children who've had half the brain removed. So they have half the brain removed in childhood 
who have gone on to college and some who have received master's degrees. But you can imagine how difficult it is for a parent to advocate to the teacher. Yes, they have half a brain, but they can learn and they're going to go to college. I mean, I've had people look at me and say, oh, can you even live with half a brain? Huh? Yeah, you, not only can you live, but you can also get your master's degree if, if, if all the cards are aligned uh, in, in the right way. Um, certainly not all of the children do, but I don't want anyone to hold back those kids who can do that. And similarly, I don't want to hold back my son as well or children like him. They deserve to get the appropriate education in school. Right. So I know a lot. I mean, I know a lot of stats about epilepsy because it's something our family lives with every day. What kind of, I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking? How many kids get surgical interventions for epilepsy? Or, I mean, I guess, is it just the Brain Recovery Project? I'm sorry, is it just surgical interventions for epilepsy or is it other brain surgical interventions, but maybe for something else? So we're just epilepsy surgery. Um, we do touch what I, you know, like a vagus nerve stimulator technically is not brain surgery because they're not going into the brain, but we want to serve, you know, all those parents where suddenly someone's saying to you, the doctor, you know, they're, they're going to fail another drug. You, you need to start thinking about brain surgery. That is really a terrifying moment for most people um, when they start to think about the fact that their child may need part of the brain removed or part of the brain stimulated or part of the brain destroyed. Uh, to stop seizures. So we hope to help them navigate that process. And and I'm going to say right now, it's not easy. Our website is not complete with content. Um, as you know, from your son's journey, we, we don't have a heck of a lot of RNS and Neuropace information on there yet. Um, and that's because I won't put anything up until I'm 100% certain it's correct or scientific advisory board has approved it, etc. So none of this is going to happen overnight. Right. Um, but helping parents navigate that journey, I think, is important. We don't know how many children get epilepsy surgery in the United States. Unfortunately, nobody's tracking them. Really? Uh, no, nobody <laughs> tracks them. Yeah, don't get me started. No, nobody tracks <laughs> them. Uh, the ICD codes, the insurance codes are not used uniformly across all hospitals. Um, but we suspect it's in the neighborhood of in a thousand-ish, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. A year? A year, if we're bringing in also vagus nerve stimulators. Um, when we take those out and just look at resections and disconnections, it's obviously less than that. I think back in, um, there was a good paper out of the Cleveland Clinic, and I want to say it showed in 2015, don't quote me on this, There were, uh, they estimated about 750 a year. Hmm. It probably seems like more for us because we're so deep in that world and we see all the parents coming into our groups all the time, maybe. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew it was niche, obviously, but I didn't realize it was that small. Um, it's supposed to be more because there's this barrier to surgery. Well, and then, yeah, and that's what I was, you know, I wanted to touch on that you said it's a terrifying moment when you're told that. And, and it is. And I've been there. Um but does it, does it need to be? I don't, I, don't, I don't personally like that it's presented as such a negative option when it's an option, you know, and for a lot yes. of kids, it works. It does. It does. Um, I think I say terrifying moment because that seems to be the reaction that many parents have. There are so many barriers to surgery. And one of the, mo- the biggest barriers in our position, in our um, 
our position is that one of the biggest barriers is actually the neurologist. So if the neurologist doesn't have a significant experience with surgery, then they're going to say to the parent, oh, you don't want to do that. Surgery is a last resort. Oh, no, no, you've got much, lots of good brain in there. You don't want to touch it. Or you need to fail more medication before we even <laughs> refer you over. So the International League Against Epilepsy says once you've failed two medications, your child is considered drug resistant and you need to start talking about epilepsy surgery. But we know that so many parents don't even get to that conversation until they've failed many more than that. I have a parent right now whose child has the same malformation as my son. The child is seizing uncontrollably and the neurologist told her she, her son had to fail all medications before the kid could have surgery. There's something like 26 anti-epileptic drugs out there. And so, but for the fact that she came into one of our Facebook groups and we told her, oh, no, no, actually the test is two. Um, and in fact, even sooner, if your child has a condition known to be drug resistant, you need to be starting the process even earlier, especially right. for infants. How do we get them there? Because that's, you know, I... Yeah. Um, it took me several years to find a team that had a more progressive mentality and that, you know, first of all, surgery is not necessarily a negative thing if your child, you know, if your child's condition warrants it. And yeah, like how many more sodium channel drugs are you going to try? Like they're not, they're not that different, you know? No. Um, so yeah, so how do we get the rest of the medical teams there? Because it wasn't, you know, if I hadn't found a team that was there, there and I, and I always give, tell people the story that everywhere we went, doctors and neurologists just shrugged and said, eh, he's always going to have a lot of seizures. Eh, he's always going to have a lot of seizures. Um, and that wasn't acceptable to me because our quality of life was so poor. Right. I think we can come at it from different fronts. So what we're doing is we launched a registry, which is tracking functional outcomes after these surgeries so that we can say, look, these kids had X type of surgery at this age and look at how they're progressing after surgery as compared to how they were progressing before. So we already have 120 who had hemispherectomy in that registry and we're starting to pull great data from there. I would like to see more parents of children that have had RNS, VNS, these smaller procedures, laser ablations, all the way to the big procedures like hemispherectomy participate in that registry. So then we have data to go back to the doctors and say, see, look at how different the child is and look at how this changes. Otherwise, all of this information is kept just at the facility itself. And we're sort of at the mercy of the doctor to see whether or not they publish about it. We have a campaign at American Epilepsy Society meeting. So I had a button this year that says epilepsy surgery is not a last resort, handed a lot of those out, you know, ask these doctors to come to our table to talk to them. Some are very open to the idea. Some follow what the International League Against Epilepsy says, but there are no national standards. There are no state standards. The American uh, Academy of Neurologists does not have standards of when referral should happen. Hmm. So we really have to interact with the physician side to get them to start to do this. Yeah, that's what... Um that was extremely frustrating to me, particularly when your child has a condition or diagnosis. You know, my son has Duke 15. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Duke 15 kids, they don't get, you know, good seizures if, if there is such a thing. We know that 
Duke 15 kids are really going to struggle with seizures. We know that they're going to fail all these meds. And, you know, among the families, we're talking and it's like, oh, we've tried this and the Depakote and the Banzel and the Lamictal and the this and the that. And it's, I don't understand the fail first mentality when you know you can look at all these kids and say, they really struggle with seizures. We need to be aggressive from the get-go because I, I find it unfortunate that no one is looking at how much destruction is done to the brain, you know, like, yeah, I got my son a surgical intervention, but it was after four years of struggling with seizures and how much damage was done to his brain in that time. You know, you still have, you still have neurologists that say that seizures don't cause brain damage. So we, we have so many, <laughs> so many hurdles um, for your population, um, participating in our registry. So then we have data yeah. to go back and say, here we have four children who had RNS implant. Here's how they were doing before, and here's how they're doing after. Not just seizure control, but we track, um, did their speech improve? Did it improve academically in school? Did their behaviors improve? Has the family's quality of life improved? You know, no one's really talking about quality of life as much as they should. You know, our families are struggling, just like any family whose child has multiple and significant challenges. This is really hard. And if we can do anything to improve quality of life, if that means just reducing the seizure significantly, that's, that's going to go a really long way. And I'm hopeful that interventions like RNS are going to work for your population. But yeah. we need to start tracking it because you saying it worked on social media is not going to get the attention of a, of a doctor anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll join the registry. Sign them up. I will. Um, but no, because you're right. It's true. And, and um, I, I think we also have to get past this all or nothing mentality um, yeah. and just improving quality of life. Because when your child goes from um, 50 to 100 seizures a day and just falling down all the time and stitches and this and that and helmets, um, to only having three or four when he goes to bed, that for us has been incredibly life-changing. But then, mm -hmm. you know, there's some people who they, they literally ask me like, well, is he still having seizures? And I say, well, yeah, but you know, and you go going to explain it and you can kind of just see them go crestfallen, you know, mm -hmm. like I, they just expected that they'd all disappear. And I'm like, do you understand what it's like that my son does not have any wake time seizures anymore? Mm -hmm. Like that's, so life-changing, you know? Um, it is. And I forget what I was going to ask you after that because I went on a, on a tangent. Well, you were um, talking quality of life. And, and yes. I do think there is there is this movement now, though, um, towards uh, talking about is zero seizures really the goal or for some of our children is just reducing them as much as humanly possible the goal. Right. Um, and I, and there is a movement there, but we have to come at it at all fronts. We're a small organization. We only got into the space, what, two and a half years ago when we expanded to all the surgery. So it takes time. I, I don't believe you start a nonprofit and then you jump in and start pounding your chest at what needs to be done. I, the stuff is complicated. I have to teach myself about it. I have to learn about RNS before I can say, um, yes, it's something that, that your community should start to consider. We do work closely with other rare orgs. I work with Dupe15Q. I know their ED very well. We're part of uh, REN. We're part of uh, the Rare and Catastrophic Seizures Consortium, uh, the Deep Network, all these other collaborative efforts in the epilepsy space. And I can tell you right now that I am saying in these meetings, 
the test is two failed drugs, the kids need to have surgical evaluations. So at least to get the other orgs on the same page, and then we can, as a united front, move to the clinician community and say, Here, here's the test, you know, let's start talking about what interventions might work for these kids. Right. And, and I think they're listening to us. I think, I think they are. I think they're on the same page. I think we're getting there. I just actually, right before this, I had a call at noon um, to do some pre-work for Rare Disease Day tomorrow. Um, and I'm doing some roundtable discussions at a place up closer to the city. But anyway, it was about improving or getting research and getting you know drug development and all that to that the tide is turning and that they are starting to focus more on caregiver input. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Um, caregiver and patient input, I should say. I'm going as a, as a caregiver, not a patient. Um, but yeah, that, that research and clinical research needs to focus on, you know, more on caregiver and listen to patients. What a novel idea. It's crazy. How, how can you possibly <laughs> do any of this without getting input from the patient and caregiver community? What do they want? What do we need? Um, right. behaviors, very important. They can right. be devastating to a family, right. really difficult to manage. Sibling support, um, listen to us. And and I think the epilepsy community as a whole with the the nonprofit organizations are, are we're making ourselves heard together in collaboration with the clinician community. Yeah. And I think, I, and I, I, I agree that I need to sign your, I mean, I need that we need patients to join your registry, but I, I believe that social media has really been a game changer for families um, and connecting. So I think that that has helped and it's, it's helping to put pressure on different groups um, in this fight. I do too. I think social media has changed the landscape for rare diseases for all of our communities. My only comment would be that the doctors are not in our social media groups. So whatever we talk about goes into the ether after we've talked about it. And right. it's really difficult for me, both as a parent, to say, hey, I heard on social media that blah, blah, blah. And it's also difficult for me to say in a meeting with a clinician, for example, by the way, our parents or social media are saying this. Wait a second. They want to see it in a, in a way that speaks to them, and that's with data. And, and that's how a registry does it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're right. And I, I find that in the disability as a whole space that there are certain groups, doctors being one of them, I would say a lot of lawyers being another that aren't active. And I get why, because they don't want to be inundated with questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that there's a certain, there are several well-known special ed attorneys in my Facebook group, but mm -hmm. I'm sure they're just, and I don't even know if they ever go in and read, you know, we don't have that kind of data behind the scenes, but they don't want to be inundated with questions all day, every day. And I get that. Well, we can't also, we're only right. licensed in the state we practice in. And then once you give advice, technically you have a, you can have an attorney client relationship with the person that you're responding to. Right. So that's why I never, almost never respond. And sometimes you tag me and I go, oh, oh. tag me, Lisa. <laughs> then, you know, because I, I, yeah, I forget that you're, that you are an attorney sometimes because I, I see you in, in a different role. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, all right, I'll stop doing that too. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I know that you have 
another appointment after this. So let's wrap up. What you said that you support families, you know, with epilepsy surgery and all that, what do you have to offer? What does the Brain Recovery Project offer for families? In terms of education, so we can come in and train your school team. So your child has had an epilepsy surgery. Um, We do a virtual training for the team on what the effects of that procedure might be, what the effects of um, being on multiple medications and then weaning them over time might be. You know, generally we see improvement in cognition once you start to wean medication. Um, We have so many guides and resources on our website, primarily around the bigger surgeries. And we've just gotten started. These things take a lot of time to write. Um, But if your child has had a hemispherectomy or a big resection, uh, we're your organization to go to for this. Our YouTube channel has a ton of information. Uh, I think we have, uh, gosh, what were we tracking over over 40,000 views, I think, on on our YouTube channel. Um, If you're a parent of a child who has epilepsy and now you're thinking about brain surgery, we've got a ton of information there for you. Um, Except for the RNS, um, we have one session from last year's conference that compared RNS, DBS, and VNS. Uh, That's a great session if you're thinking about that. Uh, But I would just say to explore our website for that information. This year, we're going to launch peer support, uh, formal, trained peer supporters. I think it's one thing to have a Facebook group. I think it's a whole other thing to have a peer supporter who's trained in best practices for providing support for a parent. Um, and so we want to launch that so that if you're anywhere on the epilepsy journey and you epilepsy surgery journey and you need help kind of navigating it, we would send you to a trained peer supporter to help with that. Mm. I'd really love to launch a medical advocacy division where we help you with insurance, where we help you have conversations with doctors. I mean, some of these appointments are 15 minutes long (laughs) for a conversation that really is so very complicated. And I think a lot of parents have a hard time talking to doctors. I think they find them really intimidating. I'd like to have some sort of a a a medical advocate program where we call into that meeting with you with the doctor and help you get the answers that you need but that will be over time okay um and you do what a biennial conference we do a biennial conference i haven't announced the location next year because i'm still negotiating with the hotels (laughs) but it's but it's in july it's fantastic we have a, a professional child care firm who comes in and takes care of your child, including a sibling if necessary. And they are trained. They do the child care for Fragile X, for Down Syndrome Society, for all these other organizations. So they have familiarity with seizures, with children with special needs. And then that gives you time to attend a full day of sessions in whatever track you feel is interesting to you. So this might be the year that you decide IEPs are worrying you in education, then you go to our education track. This might be the year that you're concerned about special needs trusts or managing behaviors, you go to that track. We always have it somewhere where it's sort of um, close to a a hospital that performs surgery, but also somewhere that's fun so that there's something for your family to do. So we had it in Cleveland last year and folks went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, the Great Lakes Science Center, we had chaperone trips for the kids um, so that they could go with a chaperone to these places. Um, 
while mom and dad were at the conference and that, that went over great. And then the last night we have a banquet and a DJ and the kids have so much fun. And, and I think it's great for the parents too. This is such a isolating journey for so many. And then you meet these people on social media and then you sit around with them and you dance and you talk and you have dinner and you, you get to know everyone that you've gotten to know virtually, which is really fun. Great. Um, okay. And where online can people find you? We're at brainrecoveryproject.org. Great. Um, well, thank you for what you do. Um, I thank had, you for what you do. Oh, thanks. I was actually, I did a, I'm working with the consultant to kind of change my website up a little bit and was talking with him yesterday and he has three kids, but had no idea what an IP is. And he said, well, and he, he said, one of the challenges he said, I think you're going to find is that yours is not a very sexy topic. And I said, no, it's, it's, really, <laughs> it's really not. Um, there's not a lot of pizzazz to it as I'm sure, you know. Um, but you know what we, we do, we both definitely fill a need um, that's, that's out there. So, yeah. Any final words you'd like to say? To the families. Or to families, to anyone who's listening that you need want to add. You gotta understand the process. Please, please do not mm. IEP without understanding the process. There are steps. Slow down. Um, you gotta know what these things are, uh, or else you're not gonna be able to do it right. It's so true. It's so true. Um, and I think that and just immersing yourself in it and being willing to learn from, you know, multiple sources, because there's a lot to learn. There is. And don't, it's not a fight. It's a collaboration. If you have this fight attitude, this mama bear bull in the china shop, as I like to say, that's, that's so dangerous. Just slow down, step back, calm down and do this the right way. Right. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, you can look for Monica at the Brain Recovery Project. And thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to the Don't IEP Alone podcast. No parent should have to IEP alone. And with a day in our shoes, you don't have to. For more IEP assistance and letter templates, visit adayinourshoes.com. For ongoing assistance and support, follow our Facebook page and group.
Wait. 